I love stories. I don't know about you, but I love stories. I love stories about people. I love stories about transformed lives. Uh, Irby and I were talking about Chuck Swindle's series on Old Testament, New Testament characters. Um, I love that series. Many of you know about the story of my brother-in-law, who in 2012, at the age of 32, 33, uh, passed away of cancer. He was someone who um, I had shared, we had shared scripture with. He wanted nothing to know about it, about Jesus, about God, about salvation, about the gospel message. And when he got sick, when he was diagnosed with the cancer, when he was getting closer to his deathbed, he became more and more open to receiving the message. And one day, um, I had come and I had read with him the story of the criminals on the cross and different responses. And I said, and, and what's your response, Daniel? What's your response? And he said, Stephen, it's funny, before you got here, I read the same passage and I trusted Christ as my Savior. I, I was reminded again of the hope that we have because of Jesus' resurrection at John Zwagstra's uh, visitation. I was not there at the memorial service on Friday, but I got to spend time with the family, with this family, with that family there. And we got to hear stories about his life, about his faith, about the impact that he had on people. Uh, Dave Burton and I were, were standing there at, at the casket and we were both thinking about the frailty of life and we both recognized the, we acknowledged that John's legacy was the great number of people in that room who had come to see him. It was, it was pretty special. It was about his faith, his hope in Christ, again, because of this Resurrection Sunday. It was about the King, Jesus, having authority in his life. Well, this morning what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And it's a text that you're familiar with. Um, it's filled with joy. It's filled with sorrow. It's filled with victory. It's filled with defeat. It's filled with celebration and condemnation. And often we refer to it as the triumphal entry. Now, and I remember it was Leslie who told me this years ago. He said, Stephen, Luke 9 is the key passage because after the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. That's his mission. There's, there's going to be a coronation. There's going to be a coronation of a king. A king is going to be crowned. And had we been reading the book of Luke leading up to Easter, we would have seen, we would have noticed, we would have read that Jesus has been very, very busy. We would have seen that, as uh, Louis spoke with us last week, that Jesus was in Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And what I remember most from what Louis shared last week is, it's not a story about Lazarus. It's a story about God. It's about God's story in the life of Lazarus, but it's to bring him glory, to recognize his value and his worth. But Jesus also spent time in Galilee, where he was with a leper. And the leper, too, he has an incredible story to tell. Jesus says that it is by his faith that he had made himself well, that he was made well. 
And then Jesus leaves Galilee and he journeys across the Jordan and he's at Jericho and there he heals a man who is physically blind. And that man sees Jesus and Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Great question. If Jesus asked you that question this morning, what would you say? But Jesus asked him, what would you want me to do for you? And the man's response is, Lord, I want to see you. And Jesus says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And so we have examples of both physical and spiritual healing. We know, we think about that hated tax collector Zacchaeus. Jesus decides to eat in his house, to have a meal with him. And all the other people are like, do they not know? Does Jesus not know that he's going to have a meal in the house of a sinner? Each of these stories in Jesus' busy life, as he's approaching Passover, they're all stories about people and about transformed lives. It's about how Jesus has the ability to change people's lives. Again, it's not so much about the story of about our changed lives, but it's about he who is doing the changing in our life. And so next week, I want to encourage everyone to come out for Easter, for the hymn sing, for the breakfast, for the breaking of bread, for that time of fellowship where we can share each other's stories, where we can hear each other's testimonies, where we can be encouraged with one another in our journey, in our walk by faith with Christ. Needless to say, Jesus had quite a a following. And so it's Passover, just a few days away. There's crowds in Jerusalem. They're getting larger and larger. I get it. Look at everything that Jesus is doing in the lives of these people. Historians estimate that there's as many as 2 million people in the city at Jerusalem at the time of Passover. That's a lot of people. And so now we're going to go to the story of his coronation. Jesus is in Bethany. He's two miles west of Jerusalem. You see it there on the map. That's the place where Lazarus and his sisters live. Hmm? Okay. Um, The time is approaching for Jesus. I don't know why this is happening, but we're going to get that all there. The time is approaching for Jesus to be crowned king. And in our text this morning... I want us to see that Jesus is God's true king through his preparation, adoration, and condemnation. So we're going to consider the story of a king's coronation. Preparation, beginning in verse 28 of Luke 19. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of, his, two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went. Away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. Follow along with me. In these verses, we see Jesus' omniscience, his ability to know absolutely everything. Just 
Take a moment to think about this. How does Jesus know that there is a cult in a village awaiting them? Can anyone here tell me the brand, the name, the color, the year of the car that's parked just in front of the steps? Anyone? Oh, somebody's trying to guess. <laughs> it was rhetorical, but okay, sure. Two. It's a no parking. Thanks, John. How, how did, here's the second thing. How does Jesus know that no one has ever sat on that colt? No, no one? No one has ever sat on it. That's what it says. Um, how does Jesus know that someone will see his disciples untying the colt and will say to them, why are you untying it? And how does he know that an answer? I don't know what you would respond to a question like that if you were one of the disciples going to get the colt, but how does he know that the response, all that was required, all he had to say in that moment was, the Lord has need of it. And that would have been good enough, end of story here, owner of the colt says, take it, it's all yours. Now, imagine the reaction of the disciples as they're going to get the colt. <laughs> There's the colt. It, it's over there, just like Jesus said it, it would be. We, we need to untie it, just like Jesus said it would be. I don't think anyone sat on it, just like Jesus said it. Oh, here comes the owner, just as Jesus said it would be. Now, they respond exactly as Jesus knew they were going to respond, but I was thinking about this. If Dan Muirhead and I were going, and uh, we were over there, and we were on this, this mission, this journey, and, and at that moment, we're looking to get the colt, all right? And, and we see the owner come out. I would have left him with the colt and I would have gone to hide to see what the reaction would have been of the owner. But there's none of that in this. Everybody is just absolutely satisfied at his answer. It, there was no explanation that was required. And this just, to me, as, as I'm reading the story about a colt that's awaiting the disciples, it just reminds me again, and this is so important, it reminds me, of Jesus' deity. I mean, there's an incredible foreknowledge. There's supernatural power, right? Details that only God's true king could know. But that's not all. In Zacharias chapter 9, verse 9, I have here on the screen, it's, it's a prophecy that was written 500 years ago. Right? This would have been at the time of my great, 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 great grandparents. A long time ago. This is before Jesus ever rode into Jerusalem on a colt. And we read, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. That's an expression referring to the people of Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Yes, brother. Lowly and riding on a donkey. 500 years ago on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I just absolutely love this. I don't know if it speaks to you the way it speaks to me, but man, this is great. 500 years earlier, we read that our Messiah, Jesus, God's anointed one, righteous and victorious, would come to his people humbly riding on a donkey. Not on a strong, conquering, white horse, no, that, that, that's reserved for when Jesus returns at the end of tribulation. We read in Revelations 19.11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. You know, this week, I, I don't know if you were following the news, 
President Joe Biden of the United States met with Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. And uh, I, I just want to read something that I, I took from the newspaper, just to put this a little bit into context. U.S. President Joe Biden arrived Thursday evening in Ottawa for a whirlwind 27-hour visit expected to focus on both the friendly and thorny aspects of the Canada-U.S. relationship, including protectionism and migration on both sides of the border. Okay, I'm, I'm not making a statement about that, but this is what I wanted to share. The welcoming party for the President and First Lady, Jill Biden, included Finance Minister Christia Freeland Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, the American Ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, and Canada's envoy in the U.S., Kristen Hillman. Biden began his time in Ottawa by meeting Governor General Mary Simon, the U.S. President along with the First Lady when they were greeted by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, at their home at Rideau College. Uh, Jesus will ride into Jerusalem, uh, not on Air Force One, but on a donkey. Uh, Jesus will not be surrounded by dignitaries, not by the finance minister or the foreign affair minister or any ambassadors or special envoys. Neither is Jesus wearing any designer robes, expensive jewelry, crowns, no. I was able to find this picture, Evan, of King Herod. Why? Why? <laughs> King Herod, just quickly, right there. He's standing right here, for those of you who don't know Tanya's brother. For those of you who don't recognize him, look at all that bling. Okay, he's got the scepter in his hand. He's got a crown full of jewels. I mean, we did not know you were coming here, so this is just great this morning. Um, I want you to focus on uh, that good-looking kid, bottom right. Uh, must take after his father. Right? In light of Jesus' infinite majesty, I am sure that you would agree that this was not a typical coronation. In a sense, you might even say that it wasn't fit for a king. Keith, you able to go forward for me? Again? Thank you. The rings that could be placed on his fingers would be replaced with a nail through each hand. I don't know about you, but every time I see that picture, um, I grimace, my, my, my body contracts. It's very uncomfortable. It, it's painful just looking at it. The crown that should have been placed on his head, made of the most expensive treasures, jewels, made of thorns. Those same thorns would pierce through his skin and, and cause the blood to flow from his head. This is a very humble coronation by all accounts. And Jesus is riding in on a donkey. And he's heading to Jerusalem, the holiest place on earth, the place where God resides, the place where his temple is located, the place where people come to find rest, the place where people come to meet God, the place where sacrifices are made, the place where the Passover is going to be celebrated, the place where lambs 
are slain. And Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. What year is it? A.D.? 30. I have 30 in my notes. It's in accordance with God's divine timetable. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I have a graph here. I love this. We know that in the book of Daniel, it says in chapter 9 that the Messiah would be killed 69 times seven weeks. What you need to know is that one week is equal to seven years. And so when you do the math, according to that calendar, it was exactly 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes. And we know that that decree was made in 444 BC, before Christ. So when we add 483 years foretold by the prophet Daniel to that date, we arrive at AD 30, the year that Jesus was put to death. And so that we see that Jesus is God's true king in the preparation of this event, because he arrives at exactly the right place, Jerusalem, at exactly the right time, AD 30, in accordance with Daniel's prophecy, riding on a donkey, as foretold by the prophet Zechariah, a donkey Jesus knew was available in the village ahead. I mean, Jesus' omniscience affirms that he is God's true king. That alone... I think I can drop the mic, go home, close. I mean, it just blows me away. When you think about all of these things in Scripture, these nuggets tucked in, it's amazing. But there's more. We see that Jesus is God's true king through his adoration. Verse 35 of our text this morning, we read, They brought it to Jesus. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. Why are they spreading their coats on the road? Like, to me, this is... Anyone? Anybody have any ideas? This is not... You throw it in. Anybody have an idea why you think the coats are being laid out? Yes, 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 a little bit more, like a red carpet. Anything else? Yes. Ah, an acknowledgement that Christ is king. We put out the red carpet for Christ is king. I, I, I was trying to explain this to Megan yesterday, and, and, I, and I was trying to come up with something ah, to explain it as a dad, right? It's like, Megan, well, why do you think people would put coats on the street. Like, I'm thinking, this just doesn't make sense. And she's like, Dad, no, that's common. I'm like, what? No, Dad, that, people do that. Like, what do you mean? Like, well, people go to concerts. And they, and they sit down. It's like, no, Megan, you gotta understand. This is dirty. The, the roads are dirty. They're sandy. People put in their coats. Well, why do you do this? Like, do you have anything else? Like, what does mom and dad tell you? And she's like, yeah, hang up your coats. <laughs> it's an act of submission. They're showing their submission to the king. They are saying, we recognize your authority. In Luke chapter 20, don't turn there, you can tonight, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they refuse to acknowledge Jesus' authority. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Jesus refused. He wouldn't fall into that trap. And so they, the people, are symbolically placing, I love this, they're symbolically placing their lives underneath Jesus' feet. 
I was having a difficult time this week after the announcement of the federal budget, and I am not making a political statement in any way. I'm just telling you how I responded to it. I was not pleased for a whole bunch of different reasons, because just because. And it, was, uh, it came out Tuesday at 4, and we had Bible study that night at 7.30, and I didn't feel like going. I was in no mood. I don't know if you've ever been like that. You got a Bible study, you don't want to go. Maybe here this morning, church. Maybe some of you don't even want to be here, but you're here anyway. And so it was even worse. I didn't even have to go anywhere. It was just a Zoom call, and I was struggling. But I decided to jump on the call. And I shared a little bit what was going on. And a dear sister, I love her to death, um, she told us the story about how years ago as a child she had failed a particular test in school. And she had come home crying that she had failed that test. All disappointed. And she tells her parents, and, and this is what her dad says to her. Her dad says, how does that impact eternity? How does that impact eternity? That was enough for me. That's why I had to be on that Zoom call. Because it's a great reminder about perspective. A wonderful story about her dad's perspective on life. A wonderful story about Jesus' perspective, our perspective. Uh, John Zwagstra's visitation and memorial service were this week. Here is a man who placed his life under the feet and authority of Jesus Christ. I had the privilege, I had the privilege, many of you, I'm just talking, I had the privilege of speaking with Barbara, his wife, the widowed wife, and she was telling me how when John was sick, he was a joy to take care of. Never bitter, never angry, always faithful, trusting God's providence. What a wonderful example, what a wonderful story about trust, about faith, about surrender, about resurrection hope. And so in our story in Luke, one of the followers lays down his coat and then another one and then another one and then there's this pile of robes on the ground forming a pathway for Jesus to Jerusalem. And we read in verse 37, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Once they reached the top of Mount of Olives, Jerusalem is now in full view. I'm not going to go back, but you remember, maybe you're doing that in that chart that I should, you come up and you get the top of the mountain, you get the whole view of the city. It's like going to uh, the lookout here in Montreal. Right? You get to the top of the mountain, you can just see everything. Or you go to the top of PVM, uh, it's not Fount Terrible, or you go to the top of Portis 360, you get to see all the city, right? So Jerusalem is now in full view, and they can see the, t the temple, they can see the eastern gate. It's a, it's a spring day, the, the sun, maybe the sun's even shining on the temple. And as they're thinking about all of the miracles that they have seen up to that point. Sidebar. <laughs> Not sure I'm going to even stick to this, but here we go. 
at John's funeral, again, I was able to speak with Barbara. And I asked her, what is the one thing that God has shown you, has taught you through this, ter- this journey? And she said to me, she said, Stephen, don't miss the miracles that happened over the past 16 weeks from the time John was diagnosed to the time that John took his last breath. And and at that time, again, nobody knew that I was going to be here this morning sharing with you. At that time, she gave me permission to share the many miracles that she went through. And then there were a number, and they were all amazing. And maybe you could even call her and ask her about them. But let me share one. She did give me permission at that time to share. I'm not sure she meant this. but And again, this is at a, at, a, at, a, at a visitation and we're having the conversation. So it's based on my memory at that moment, right, as accurate as I can remember, right? But so she said it was, it was towards the end and um, she had sent one of the boys outside to get the sisters. And at that time, John's eyes, again, we're, we're nearing the end of his life, they became glossy, glassy. It's like, like they rolled back. Like there, was, she, there was like nothing there. And, and she prays. And she prays and she says, God, just get, give us one more time for the kids to come in and to say goodbye before you take him. She didn't know what was going to happen, right? You're there in the moment. I, I can only imagine the emotion. And so the kids come back. And believe it or not, John's eyes clear up. The kids are in the room. And for those of you who remember them, when they used to come here to RBC, John would play his guitar and the the kids would sing. They loved singing. They got great voices. They started singing in the room with John there on the bed. Hymns. I think it was one hymn with four different stanzas, but it might have been, they were singing. And John has an oxygen mask on his face and Barbara turns around and she says when she turns back, the mask is gone. Oh, no, he, he must have knocked it off. And then, and then they're singing some more, and she turns around, and the mask is off again. And No, John's taken off the mask. And he, he couldn't speak. He couldn't speak. But with each breath, he was singing along with the kids as they were praising God in that moment. And then he went home. As you, as you think about the miracles, as the people in our story in Luke think about the miracles, you know what their response is? They break out in song. Psalm 118, they, they start singing. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize Jesus as king. They recognize his authority. That's what it means to come in the name of the Lord. They recognize that Jesus was sent by God as their true king. In a couple of days, some of those same people who are praising God with their, li- with their lips, at, their, at that very moment, They're also going to utter the words, crucify him, crucify him. 
But at that particular moment, in their shallowness, they're caught up in the moment with the crowd. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And to understand what it means to come with authority, if I said to come, uh, I have an important message from the prime minister of Canada, you would probably listen because it was a message backed with authority. By the way, Justin says hello. Just kidding. <laughs> but I've got your attention. And that's exactly what it means to come in the name of the Lord. It means to come with authority. So not only, so not only were the people praising God, but in Matthew 21.8, it tells us that they were also cutting branches from the trees. You know what the branches were? They were a symbol of, symbols of joy. And, and, and they're spreading them on the roads because they recognize Jesus' authority. And they recognize that Jesus' authority results in joy. And in that Matthew passage 21 verse 8, we read, and again it's on that screenshot, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Matthew also adds in his gospel that the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. And of interest, the term son of David is the most common reference to Messiah. Second um, Samuel chapter 7 refers to God's anointed one, son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the Messiah. And we know that Hosanna means save now. So what they were saying was, Jesus, Messiah, save us now. Jesus, Messiah, save us now. Jesus, Messiah, save us now. They recognized that Jesus was the one who could save, but they were hoping that Jesus would save them from the Romans. They didn't recognize that Jesus was there to save them from their sins. But there would be no glory before there was a cross. And so here you have a crowd of people, some in front and some behind Jesus. They're laying down their, their cloaks, their coats in an act of submission. Others are uh, placing branches on the road, praising God in anticipation of the arrival of his kingdom, recognizing him as Messiah, the one who has the ability to save them now. Again, not necessarily from their sins, but from the Romans. And so the people are praising Jesus, God's king, proving that he was God's chosen king because only a true king deserved to be worshipped. But this deeply upset the Pharisees because they did not for a moment believe that Jesus was the Messiah, nor did they believe that he should be worshipped. How dare Jesus accept their adoration? This is blasphemy. Verse 39, we read, some of the Pharisees, again, that's a Jewish, religious, political group. You can get that. Say hello. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke. Again, that's an expression of, of sharp disapproval or, or criticism, right? 
Um, rebuke your disciples. I love, Jesus is not king. Rebuke him for falsely recognizing your authority. Um, stop cutting the branchers. Uh, uh, they should be tree huggers. Uh, think about the environment. Uh, or the ESG, uh, environmental social governance, and, and what they're singing is blasphemous. Rebuke them. And this brings us to our third point this morning. We see that Jesus is God's true king through his condemnation. Verse 40, we read, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones, I love that, the stones will cry out. Jesus was saying, if they keep quiet, if you keep quiet, if they keep quiet, the stones are going to cry out. What? And sure enough, that week, would the people be quiet? Absolutely. For the remainder of the week, pretty quiet. Up until the crowd would ask Pilate to release Barnabas, a convicted murderer and uh, insurrectionist, in exchange for innocent Christ. If you keep quiet... The stones will cry out. What does that mean? The stones, that's, that's poetic. What does it mean? Oh, let's go back here. In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, we have an excellent parallel. We are told that in that book that the Chaldeans, which were a powerful people living in Babylonia and Mesopotamia, these people had accumulated their wealth and their power by committing murder, uh, extortion, right? That's when you, you take money by force, or even thievery, theft. Okay? They'd steal it. And what we read in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, God pronounces judgment to the people through his prophet. And we read, the stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. It is clear from these verses that the stones were symbols, symbols of the Chaldeans' bloodshed and injustice. It was symbols of their wickedness. Jesus is pronouncing judgment. He sees through their hypocrisy. He sees through their shallowness. He sees through their superficiality. So he announces their condemnation. The stones will cry out. And as he's approaching Jerusalem, he sees the city and he begins to weep. Verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jesus is again Weeping, crying. Louis spoke about it last week. I believe here that the word, though, for weeping is much stronger than when Jesus wept by, by Lazarus' grave over sin and death. If you want to see what Louis, was, Louis said about that definition, go back and listen to the tape. I think this is even greater than that. Because he is sobbing because he knows the heart of the people. Because he knows what's going to happen to the city. He knows what's going to happen to the people in the future. He knows about his imminent death in the days to follow. And so in verse 42, we read, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. If you had known in this day, he's not speaking about a specific day of the week. 
He's referring to the time spent in his presence when they were together. If you had known of this day, even you, the things which make for peace, the things that make for peace. Jesus is not speaking about peace with the Romans. He is speaking about peace with God only available through Christ Jesus. The obituary for Donald Taylor read, Donald Robert Taylor passed into the presence of his Lord on March 29, 2023. He was 80 years old. That's the hope that his kids, when they write that in the newspaper, online, that's the hope that they have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. Don was a devoted follower of Jesus, having found true life. You know what? That's peace with God. In the Gospel of Christ, we read, he loved to study the scriptures and sing hymns at the piano. That's joy. He was a member of Rosemont Bible Church for over 50 years. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been inviting people to turn from their sins and to trust in his person for the forgiveness of sins. This was true for the leper. This was true for the blind man. This is true for Zacchaeus. And this peace is available to everyone. Each and every one of us, including my brother-in-law Daniel, including John Zwagstra, including Don Taylor. And now I'll let you fill in the blank. Because I know that you have a story. Or two. Or three. If you had known in this day, even you, look, there's no excuses, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus is telling them that they're living in the dark, that they're spiritually blind, blinded by their own self-righteousness. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you. That was a common way in the Old Testament to say that judgment was coming. For the days will come upon you, verse 43, when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children with you. That's exactly what would happen 40 years later, after Jesus' death, right? The Jewish people would revolt against the Romans. The Romans would then, uh, and their troops would take a barricade, put it around the city walls. This way you couldn't leave, you couldn't leave or come into without getting killed. Then they'd starve the people. That's what you do. People become weak, too weak to fight. They'd be hemmed in, pressure on all sides. Look, look. Look at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Tell me the strategy is not somewhat similar. It says then they would be leveled to the ground, both the city and the people, including the children. Hundreds of thousands of people were said to be killed during that siege. Verse 44, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. So the people have been slaughtered. The temple has been destroyed. The stones are left there lying in a pile on the ground a reminder of the rebellion, unbelieving hearts. And Jesus' words in verse 40 remind us, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And that's what they did. It's a reminder of God's condemnation. Why? Because in verse 44, it says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And what time is that? Well, that's a time of peace, a time of reconciliation, a time of forgiveness. Jesus is God's true king through his condemnation. You see, the people wanted a conquering hero but received a condemning judge. 
who told them that they were spiritually blind and that the stones would cry out because of the rejection of the one who offers peace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And so as we draw to an end, as we think about the stories, the life stories of transformed lives, people who have been transformed in the presence of the living Christ, when we think about the story of Jesus Christ, God's true king, let me ask you the following question. What's your story? What's your story? Easter is next week. David said, how's your preparation? David Barrett says, how's your preparation coming for Easter? Easter is still a week away. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading through Bible through a year. I'm going through Psalms and Proverbs and the earlier book of Matthew. I'm in Christmas. <laughs> it was a wonderful time to be reflective and to start preparing my heart for Easter. How is my heart as Easter is just around the corner? Are there spiritual blind spots in my own life that I need to be aware of? Keith and I spoke about this on Friday night. You know, we get a uh, a physical diagnosis, and man, we, we rush to the hospital and we take care of it, but how many times do we get indications that there might be something spiritually wrong that we just ignore? So how have I been transformed in the presence of the living Christ? What type of peace do I have with God, right? In terms of adoration, do I recognize God's authority in my own life? I, am I willing to lay down my own jacket? or whatever it is that I need to surrender. Irby, we sang about surrendering this morning, right? What do I need to lay down at his feet because he is king? Right? Or is, are our lives filled with praise? Are they overflowing with joy? Are we singing those songs even when it feels like death is around us? And lastly, Jesus was condemned of death by crucifixion because of our sins. And because of his death, God now reconciles us back to him. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8 verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you recognize him as king in his, in his preparation and adoration and, and condemnation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all have a story. We are not perfect. But you love us, God, with all your heart. I'm so often reminded that the greatest thing about me is that God loves me. And so thank you that many of us are followers of Christ. Perhaps, Lord, there are some here this morning whose story is similar to the fickle crowd. Um, people who earlier in the week praised God, but by the end of the week were asking that he be crucified and that a known murderer replace his innocence. 
Father God, let us sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Let us recognize the one who saves us. Help us not to ignore the miracles in our own life, the healings, the teachings. Help us not to be blinded by our own self-righteousness. If there is anyone here who does not know you as King, as Lord, as Savior, but who wants to, may this be the moment where your Holy Spirit speaks to their heart and convicts them of the sin in their life and that they turn to you and they acknowledge you as King and they ask you into their life. Thank you for the hope that we have in the resurrection. Thank you that we no longer have to stay in our death clothes. That there is life beyond the grave. For the ones that we've lost. For the ones that we care about. For the ones who are struggling now. And someday, Lord, we know that our fate will be just like them. But we have an incredible hope of being reunited with you because of your resurrection. The grave is empty. The stone is rolled away. The body is no more. No more running from God. No more turning our back. Now is the time. This is the place to ask God into our life to save us from our sin. Jesus, Messiah, save us now. Do we accept it or do we reject it? What will be our story? Lord God, it doesn't end here with an amen, but may it carry through this day, this week. In your holy and precious and righteous and humble name, we pray. Amen.